Good afternoon. Oh, let's try that again. Good afternoon. My name is Jonathan L. Walton. I am the plumber professor of Christian morals. And I would like to welcome you all here to the Memorial Church of Harvard University, a space of grace for all people at the center of Harvard Yard. We have a saying here at the Memorial Church. It is that everyone at Harvard may not belong to the Memorial Church, but the Memorial Church belongs to everyone at Harvard. This is to say, what we do on Sunday morning as a worshiping, multi-denominational Protestant community may not be your cup of tea. But six other days a week, we are a classroom of critical engagement and a laboratory of learning in the humanities, the performing arts, and social sciences. Our doors swing on, as we say back in Georgia, on welcome hinges. <laughs> for people across religious, racial, ethnic, and all other shifting categories of difference. We are a university church. Thus, the Latin veritas is our motto. We are committed to the pursuit of truth. We are committed to expanding both knowledge and ways of knowing. And we are committed to asking the tough questions that disrupt received dogma and trouble prevailing ideologies. Nevertheless, as a community constructed on the principles of love and sacrifice, we also pursue caritas, the Latin term of charity animated by love. When this building was dedicated on Armistice Day, November 11th, 1932, to honor those whose lives were cut short in World War I, Harvard University made it clear that an ethic of sacrifice and service should define the spiritual center of this university. Veritas and Caritas. The pursuit of truth is our motto. Serving humanity in love is our goal. And for these reasons, it's only fitting that the Harvard Divinity School selected the Memorial Church to host a man that embodies these principles like few others, the 39th President of the United States and Nobel Peace Prize winner, President Jimmy Carter. The famed scholar of religion, educator, and activist, and close friend of President Carter, Benjamin Elijah Mays, he once said that the love of God and the love of humanity are indeed one love. In other words, it's impossible for anyone to say that they love a God that they have never seen, yet treat poorly those who they walk beside each and every day. But rather, we must realize that the same love that causes us to come into houses of worship and worship a God must also catalyze us to serve humanity. President Carter is a moral exemplar of this sort of love ethic. 
Throughout his distinguished career, he has kept track of those trapped in the shadows of injustice. From Southern Sudan to fighting injustice in the Southern Baptist Church, from Gaza to building homes along the Gulf Coast, President Carter has raised his voice as a courageous evangelist of justice throughout the globe. And in the process, he has demonstrated that agape, selfless love, can be more than a Pollyannish platitude. This is why it's so special for me and it's so special for this university to welcome all of you here this afternoon to listen and learn from the man who holds Veritas and Caritas together. To formally introduce President Carter now, I present to you the Alonzo L. McDonald Professor of Evangelical Studies, the John Lord O'Brien Professor, and the Dean of the Faculty of Divinity here at Harvard University. Please welcome Professor David Hempton. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much, Professor Walton, um, uh, and thanks very much um, for the hospitality of Memorial Church today. So today you get these two beautiful Georgia accents, um, <laughs> interspersed with this Irish thing. <laughs> so this is the part you have to be patient with. Um, it's great to see such a wonderful crowd here. Uh, don't forget you can come here any week without a ticket. <laughs> um, so as Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it is my privilege to welcome uh, President Jimmy Carter to Harvard to speak about his very important new book, A Call to Action, Women, Religion, Violence, and Power. It's also a pleasure to welcome all of you, both physically present with us here at Memorial Church and also those joining us via our live web stream. A warm welcome to everyone. I want to begin by thanking the large numbers of people, both at the Carter Center and here at Harvard, who have worked tirelessly putting together this event. In particular, I'd like to thank my colleague, Professor Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, who first made the connection with Karen Ryan and Beth Davis from the Carter Center, which was the initial spark for this event. As one of the foremost pioneers of feminist Christian theology, Professor Schusler Fiorenza has long courageously advocated many of the causes highlighted in President Carter's book. We're also indebted to the Susan Shawcross Swartz Endowment for Christian Studies and the Swartz family for generously supporting this event and for being with us uh, here today. Finally, my thanks go to Karen Grundler Whitaker for devoting many hours of meticulous planning and characteristic creativity to making this a very special day in the life of the Divinity School. All the elements in this book, President Carter writes, concerning prejudice, discrimination, war, violence, distorted interpretations of religious texts, physical and mental abuse, <clears throat> poverty and disease, fall disproportionately on women and girls, Anyone who cares about human rights must be deeply disturbed by the indisputable truth of this statement. And anyone who cares about religion must be greatly saddened by how often religion creates the circumstances and supplies the rationale for some of this discrimination and abuse. 
At a time when progress and global poverty, economic growth, peace, and so much more depends on mobilizing all our resources, half the world's population continues to face a wide variety of obstacles and violence at the hands of men, institutions, and I'm sorry to say, religious traditions. In reading President Carter's book, I confess that I was staggered by the sheer scale of the problem. Chapter by chapter unfolds with graphic stories and statistics of sexual assault and rape, violence and war, genocide and slavery, trafficking and prostitution, genital cutting and honor killings, child marriage and domestic abuse, unequal pay, and unequal access to information. President Carter notes that we in the United States and uncomfortably we in higher education are hardly exempt from this crisis. In addition to the thousands of women trafficked in the United States each year, sexual assault is all too common in our military and on our campuses. Only last summer, in fact, Harvard issued its first university-wide sexual and gender-based harassment policy and created an office for sexual and gender-based dispute resolution to investigate complaints of harassment. It's a reminder to us all that the work of facing down discrimination and violence against women reaches deep into our own institutions and must be the work of us all. It is a particular privilege for the Divinity School to host President Carter's address on these issues. Since its establishment in 1973, the scholars of the school's Women's Studies and Religion program have helped change the way societies around the world look at women and faith. In the words of its founding director, Constance Buchanan, the Women's Studies and Religion program raises gender inequality as a moral problem and points out that equality means gaining full moral stature as a human being, not just for women, but for everyone. President Carter offers a striking example of what we mean at Harvard Divinity School when we speak of bringing religious resources to bear on life and the world's greatest challenges. His deep knowledge of religion, not just Christianity, but also Judaism and Islam and other traditions, enabled him to broker the landmark Camp David Accords and the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, which still endure despite decades of war and conflict in the region. The study and practice of religion are also important to President Carter. He has taught Bible 35 to 40 Sundays a year in his church in Georgia for over 70 years. So Mr. President, if you ever, get, if you ever find yourself out of work at the Carter Center, <laughs> HDS can always use a good Bible scholar. <laughs> his faith inspires him to reach out to leaders around the world to engage one another in dialogue. His faith also inspires a commitment to service, from the efforts of the Carter Center to mediate conflict, promote democracy, protect human rights, and prevent disease in nearly, in nearly 80 countries around the world, to his own work building homes with Habitat for Humanity, which he still does for a week every year. Finally, the lessons of religion have enabled President Carter to develop extraordinary moral courage and personal integrity. An example of this that I find particularly poignant in his book has to do with his relationship to his own church. President Carter writes in a call to action that he became a Baptist at the age of 11, just as his father and grandfather had before him. He was deeply involved in the church for over 60 years as both a deacon and a teacher. 
But when the Southern Baptist Convention in 2000 voted that women should no longer serve as pastors, deacons, chaplains, or teachers in seminaries with male students, both he and his wife, Rosalind, with great sadness, severed connections uh, with the SBC. In his chapter on the Bible and gender equality, President Carter explains his decision and quotes from Alison Bowden, the Dean of Religious Life at Princeton, who stated, for some Christians to use the gospel to compromise the human rights of women and others borders on the obscene. The ethic of Jesus Christ proclaims the radical equality of human value. The ending of the subordination of women and all who are dominated is critical to the building of the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. President Carter still remains active in his local Baptist congregation, which is co-led by a male and female pastor and where Mrs. Carter is a deacon. A Call to Action is a disturbing book, but it is not a humorless book. Many of his stories have a whimsical moral grandeur and self-effacing wit. Writing of the Carter Center sanitation work in Ethiopia, he proudly declares himself as, quote, perhaps the world's preeminent sponsor of latrines. <laughs> as someone who once dug latrines for youth canvas camps, I can truly say that President Carter has gone up even more in my estimation. <laughs> Digging latrines is not a happy job. So it's my very great pleasure to present to you a man of faith and moral conviction who has devoted his life to service and to human rights. Ladies and gentlemen, the 39th Chief Executive of the United States of America and the winner of the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize, please welcome to Harvard. President Jimmy Carter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I already feel at home here because um, Reverend and Professor Walton and I have uh, degrees from Morehouse College in, Amer in uh, Atlanta, and uh, Dean Hempton occupies the Al McDonald Chair. Al McDonald was my Chief of Staff in the White House when I was President of the United States, so I have feel very close to them. Also, the Veritas and Caritas analysis that uh, that the dean used is one that I taught in Sunday school Sunday morning in the book of 2 John. In fact, very seldom do Christians emphasize the word truth. We emphasize the word faith and compassion, but not very much truth. But if you read the book of 2 John, uh, in the first four verses, he uses the word truth five times and goes on to tie together the fact that the Christian faith cannot be strong unless the word charity and love is combined with the word truth. Seeking truth is very difficult. It's hard for us to know the whole truth because quite often we as human beings like to know just part of the truth, that part that benefits us. And I've experienced that since I was a child, as a matter of fact. I grew up in Archery, Georgia, which is about two and a half miles west of Plains, Georgia. Plains has a population of 630 now. 
It's grown a lot since I was a child. <laughs> and archery was just a rural community. Our family was the only white family who lived there. All my playmates, all my fellow field workers, the boys with whom I wrestled and fought and fished and hunted were all black people. And I grew up during a time when the truth was distorted throughout this country by the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Congress, the American Bar Association, almost all the theologians to say that African Americans or black people were inferior to whites. For 100 years after the war between the states or the Civil War, separate but equal was the law of the land and black people were treated as inferiors. Separate, yes. Equal, no. In the community where I lived and all over America in most places, an African-American was not permitted to serve on a grand jury or a petit jury, and they could not vote in the South. I was on the school board later when I retired from the Navy. I was a submarine officer. And uh, I found that uh, the black children used textbooks that were worn out by the white children. And the black children had 26 elementary schools in my county. The whites had three, all nice brick buildings. The reason that the black children had 26 schools was because they didn't have school buses. Just the white children had school buses. And finally, when the Civil Rights Movement began and some of the legislators began to try to say, well, it is equal, they ordained that black children could have school buses. But they also included in the legislation that all the front fenders of buses that hauled black children had to be painted black. So people would always know that the children in those buses were not quite as precious as the white children. So we tend to distort the truth in order to benefit ourselves. And that doesn't just include people who are persecuting others, but people who sit quiet while others are persecuted. There is an exact same parallel between the way black people were treated in some parts of this country when I was a child and the way women and girls are treated all over the world now. Well, I didn't really intend to start my comments in that way. I was going to try to put you a little bit more at rest by quoting a, a cartoon in the New Yorker <laughs> to show you how I've spent my life since I left the White House. <laughs> this little boy is looking up at his father and he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a former president. <laughs> well, a former president has a very special place. We're not only uh, political has-beens, which means that we're not seeking public office and we can go where we wish, we meet with whom we choose, we say what we really believe. 
and uh, voters can't put it out of office because we do what we know is right. And that has given me a great deal of freedom since I left the White House. I've been a professor at Emory University now for 33 years. We formed the Carter Center as soon as I left the White House. And the Carter Center gives me and my wife a chance to explore things that are of most important to us. We have an almost unlimited agenda from which we can choose the items on which we want to devote our time, and we can reject the ones that we don't want to do. And this has given us a wide range of opportunities. We've had programs now in 80 countries on Earth. One of the things we do is negotiate peace agreements between people who have an ongoing or an impending war. And we go to places where most American politicians don't go. I go to Cuba quite regularly. I've been to North Korea three times. We go to Nepal, which is, was headed earlier by Maoists. And I even deal with uh, leaders like in Khartoum in North Sudan, where the president has been declared guilty or indicted under the International Community, uh, Criminal Court. So we deal with people who are kind of international outcast to try to see what we can do to help them. Quite often we help countries have elections in troubled areas where they couldn't ordinarily have an election on their own if we didn't help them. We began that process. And this week we are conducting, uh, monitoring our 99th election since I left the White House. It happens to be in Tunisia. Tunisia is where, where the so-called Arab awakening or Arab uh, spring started. And uh, two weeks ago, we held the election for parliament. And this week, they are electing uh, president of uh, Tunisia all peacefully. That's the kind of thing that the Carter Center does. But one of the other things that we do is to deal with basic human rights. And we consider a human right to be not exactly what you would list on a tablet if I asked you to list the basic human rights. You would probably list freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of uh, worship, uh, trial by jury. All those are very important. But for many people in the world, those are not the most important human rights. More important is to be able to live in peace and to have a decent home, to have food to eat, and a modicum of education and uh, health care, or to be free of unwarranted personal abuse. Every year, the Carter Center for the last 20 or 25 years has had an annual meeting of uh, human rights defenders, or you might use the word human rights heroes. These are people within their own country have to defend human rights because their own government is persecuting them for the last uh, three years now and for this coming year. Our major topic has been the abuse of women and girls. This is the most horrendous, almost incredible human rights abuse on earth. One is not understood by many people because most people don't want to know what's going on. The Carter Center has had a lot to do in Egypt. 91% of every female in Egypt has had her genitals mutilated. 
by a so-called cutter, a woman who uses a razor blade or some other sharp instrument to remove all the external parts of a woman's female organ. And in extreme cases, they sew the orifice up so that uh, the girl can only urinate or menstruate a little bit later on. When she gets married, they open up the orifice enough for her to have sexual relations with her husband or to deliver babies. It's against the law in Egypt to do this to a girl, but the girl is ignored. In Djibouti and in Somalia, over 97% of all the women or girls have had their sexual organs mutilated. The United Nations General Assembly has outlawed this practice two different times. It has no effect. Well, that's just one of the things. Honor killings are still perpetrated in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, India, where if a girl in a family is raped by a stranger through no fault of her own, she's considered to be a disgrace to her family. And for the honor of the family, the family members killed her. Most often by the father. In Egypt, over a 10 year period, 20% of the murders were conducted or perpetrated by the mother. And increasingly in countries like Jordan and Morocco, where there's some laws against it, the murder is conducted by a teenage brother who is impervious to adult punishment if he should or should not be punished for this crime. In most cases, they're not punished. Those are the kind of things that go on in countries around the world. I would say the most, one of the most severe punishments is to marry a child at an age of eight to 12 years old to an older man, either for the benefit of the parents or just to get rid of a child in a family who the family feels they cannot support by feeding her. And it's an easy way to get rid of a little girl. Well, that's not the worst crime against girls. This next thing that I'll tell you is almost inconceivable. There are 160 million females missing from the face of the earth. That's three or four times as many people who's, who died in the World War II. About 50 million died in the Second World War. 160 million females are missing from the face of the earth. They've been strangled by their parents at birth or in more modern times with free access to the internet and with the cheap sonograms the parents can ascertain that the fetus is going to be a girl, so they abort her before she's born. There was a movie that came out last November called It's a Girl, a very famous movie. And in it, there's a woman from India who, without any embarrassment, says she strangled eight daughters at birth. 
because she and her husband could not afford to feed them. The first time I went to China was in 1949. Later on, after I left the White House, I went back to China in 1981. They were very proud of that program for, con for population control or family planning. And they had billboards over China with a parents holding a little child's hand, always a boy, and with the slogan, one is best, two is most. And the Chinese government would punish the parents if they had more than one child in some cases or two child at extreme. So the parents, without adequate birth control, would continue to have babies. They wanted boys, so they would kill the girls. In China now, for every 100 girls, there are 118 boys. And if you multiply that 18, or whatever you want to call it, percent, times a billion people, you see how many girls are missing in China. In India, the ratio is 112 boys to 100 girls. And in some parts of India, there are only 650 girls for every 1,000 boys. Just look at those ratios. And uh, you can see that the deliberate murder of baby girls by their parents is perhaps one of the most horrible crime rates the world has ever seen. These are the things that go on throughout the world. And uh, very little is done about it. Why is this done? Well, in the title of my book, I use three ex explanations. Religion, violence, and power. Religion. The dean has already mentioned the reason why my wife and I withdrew from the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000 because the church ordained that women are inferior to men in the eyes of God. In some Southern Baptist Convention uh, theological centers, a woman is not permitted to teach a classroom of students if there is a boy in a class. And women can't be chaplains, they can't be deacons, they can't be pastors of a church. And the reason for that is that men control the power structure in the Southern Baptist Convention. Other religions are the same. I know the Catholic Church, which is very important here, and in my own area as well, does not permit women to be pastors or deacons in the church, or to administer the most precious sacraments of the church. I wrote to Pope Francis, when I finished my book, I sent him a copy of the book. He wrote me back, and he said he agreed with me that women should play a, an increasing role in the Catholic Church, which I appreciate. What will happen in the future, I don't know. I noticed that uh, a cardinal who is important here in Boston, on an interview, I think, 60 Minutes last Sunday night, explained the disparity by saying, not quite facetiously, facetiously, that, well, women can have babies and men can't. Which I don't think is quite a logical reason why 
Well, anyway, I'm not belaboring that point. But the other thing is violence. And our country is particularly guilty of setting a standard of violence that makes it possible for women to be abused with impunity. Our country, I, my wife and I have been in more than 145 countries in the world. And there's a general impression, almost uni universal, that the number one warmongering nation on earth is the United States of America. We've been at war almost continually with 30 different countries since the Second World War. In four years, we did not go to war. We never fired a bullet. We never dropped a bomb. We never launched a missile. I won't say which four years it was. But you see, when, when religious leaders say that women are not equal to men, then that gives the potential woman abuser an excuse within his own family, a husband, an employer who wants to pay women less than men for the same work, or other means that I've already described to you. If women are not equal in the eyes of God, why should I treat my wife uh, as an equal? And violence lowers the standard of relationships between human beings. And the powerful take advantage of their authoritative or dominant position. When I left office as governor, there were about one in a thousand people in prison in the United States. There are now 7.3 times as many. Out of every 1,000 people, 7.3 on average are imprisoned. Since I left the White House, the number of black women in prison has increased 800%. And the United States has more people in prison than any other nation on Earth on a percentage basis, and it's been increasing. We have, we're the only developed country on Earth that has the death penalty. And uh, in my book, I describe all the reasons why this is a fallacious approach to controlling violent crimes. In states that have a death penalty, the, the uh, murder rate is greater, even when two states are side by side. None of the countries in Europe have the death penalty. And 90% of all the executions in the world are done by China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United States of America. These kind of things deeply concern me, not because of me, but because of the impact it has on women and girls. I come now to one of the great universities on Earth, maybe the greatest. And in our university system in America, it's a symbol of admiration and pride. But there is a place where women and girls are abused. A recent report in the New York Times by the US Justice Department said that one out of 10 girls who matriculate in an American university will be raped before she finishes college. One out of four or five 
will be sexually assaulted. And practically nothing is done about it. Female students are discouraged from reporting an abuse against her because, very logically, uh, a dean or president of a college don't want it to be known that in their institution these crimes are committed. So the girl is warned against informing, and also when she does inform her superiors, the crime is hushed up. And the Justice Department also reports that 90% of all the rapes on campus are, do are done by 4% of the boys. Because they know when they get to college, they will be immune to punishment. And you might be interested in knowing that less than 5% of rapes on college campuses are ever reported. In civilian life, the percentage is 35%. So a third of all the rapes outside the universities are reported. Less than one out of 20 are reported on a college campus. And when they're reported, practically nothing is done about it. The other great I would say institution that's admired in our country is the military. I served in the military for 12 years. I was on two battleships and three submarines. And early this year, the Department of Defense reported that in 2012, the last year tabulated, there were 26,000 cases of sexual assault in the military. Only 3,000 were ever brought to justice. Only 310 resulted in the punishment of the rapist. That's 1%, about 1%. So you see, we have a lot to be concerned about. And uh, I'll discover one other subject, and that is slavery. I mentioned earlier the Civil War, when the world rose up in Europe and the United States and everywhere else against slavery. There are now more human beings sold into slavery across international borders than there ever were in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900, 19th centuries. And, uh, this takes place in America. The Congress requires now that the Secretary of State of our country report on human trafficking or slavery or involuntary servitude. And they estimate that in the United States, 60,000 people are living in slavery. My Carter Center and Emory University located in Atlanta, Georgia. At our last Defenders Conference at Carter Center in June, it was reported that between 200 and 300 people are sold from overseas into slavery in Atlanta, Georgia, every month, between 200 and 300. 
and the worldwide average is 80% of those sold into slavery are girls sold involuntarily into sexual slavery. The reason that Atlanta is the number one trading post in America for slaves is that we have the busiest airport on earth. And a lot of our passengers come in from the southern hemisphere where the girl's skin is either black or brown. And a brothel owner can buy a girl for sexual purposes for about $1,000. A white girl sells for as much as $8,000. These uh, facts are sickening. They make me partially nauseated to talk about them and to report them. But there are corrective actions that can be taken. In the final chapter of my book, which I hope you will read, I list 23 things that we can do about it. Some are already taking place, and I describe those very carefully. Where is the uh, focal point for resolving these horrendous crimes? I would say in the United States, because we have the greatest impact on other countries of any nation. And where in the United States should be the repository or the origin of or the focal point for corrective action? I would say among people like you, students and professors at our great universities. I hope every one of you will consider these facts and decide what we can do about it. Whether you're deeply religious or deeply patriotic or just committed to the principles of human rights or decency or justice or morality We need to act against these terrible crimes, against more than half the population of the earth, women and girls. Thank you. Thanks so much for a very powerful, disturbing, upsetting um, um, uh, presentation and for an equally uh, powerful book. Um, could I just start by asking you, I know you've been committed 
to these causes for, for quite some time, but what was the final push for you to uh, put pen to paper and address this issue in a really systematic way in the book? What, what, what got you moving to, to write about it? Well, as I mentioned, the Carter Center's had programs in 80 countries in the world, and these are the countries that are most in need, where people are poorest and suffer most from correctable diseases and things of that kind, where they can't have honest elections. And so as we travel around the world for the last 32 years or so, we've been able to see the deprivation of, of those people themselves. But whenever there is a choice of a mother and father between a boy or a son and a daughter, the sons get the privilege. They are left, the, the people, uh, uh, parents don't strangle their boys. They just strangle the girls. Mm -hmm. And if there's a choice between who gets the food and who doesn't, it's a boy. Mm -hmm. And if uh, there's a choice about who gets an education or not, it's a boy who gets it. Mm -hmm. And the girls are horribly uh, persecuted. And a lot of it is derived from, I would say, the misinterpretation of biblical uh, scriptures. Mm -hmm. And I got to know quite well the uh, grand imam of Azar University in Cairo, Egypt. It's a university of 120,000 students. And the grand imam is, is a, a leader of this of a university. He's also the spiritual leader of the uh, Sunni Muslims, which is about three-fourths of all the Muslims on earth. And he joined in with me, and he pointed out that in the Islamic faith, there is no scripture that you can use to prove that girls are inferior to boys. There are some in, in, the, in the Holy Bible, and, and I cover that in chapter three quite thoroughly, maybe more thoroughly than, than my uh, education and training warranted, but, uh, but I cover that. So as I saw how, how prevalent and how much worse the situation was than I had earlier thought, eventually I decided that someone should write a book of a definitive nature. And since we'd had three separate uh, uh, conventions, you might say, with the foremost experts on earth coming and talking to us, I took care careful notes mm -hmm. and then I began to, to write this book. Mm -hmm. So it was because of my awareness of what went on in other countries as well as what went on in the United States, which was really a surprise to me. Yeah. It, it reads as a book that comes out of a deep place and, and, and I was just wondering just how long it took you to write it. There's a kind of immediate urgency to the book which feels as if it's almost poured onto the page, as it were. I mean, is that, was that your writing experience or how did you? Well, as, as I told you earlier, this is my 28th book. It's by far the most important book I've ever written. Mm. And uh, I wrote it in just a few months because I was immersed in the subject and I knew the data and, mm. and with Karen Ryan, who's in charge of our human rights program, helping me and, and all the women and others that participated in our last conference. Mm. Also, I took notes during that conference. Mm -hmm. I was able to put the book together in a fairly uh, mm -hmm. quick way. And uh, I hope it'll be, uh, have an impact. It already has, as a matter of fact. You may have noticed in the last, uh, this year, since the book came out, there's been much more news reporting about different things going on uh, than before. Maybe that's because of it. And, and I also sent a copy of the book to, I think, 194 heads mm -hmm. of government. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of response did you get? Well, we've gotten letters back from more than a third of them who claim that they That's read the book. That's more than I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> they claim that they read the book and they're going to do something about it. And one of them, as I mentioned earlier, was the Pope. But uh, 
we, for instance, there is a, a, a subject that I didn't have a chance to cover, and that is prostitution. Because most of these girls coming in through, across borders are sold as, as involuntary prostitutes. And uh, there's not a whorehouse or a brothel in America that, that the uh, public officials don't know is there. Mm -hmm. the, the policemen that walk the beat, they know that men are going back and forth into a house all during the night and coming out very soon. And so the, the policemen are either bribed or they're given free sexual favors to uh, uh, look the other way, or they are told by their chief of police and their mayor and city council, let's don't rock the vote. Well, so prostitution is so permeating that it is a reason for the international sexual trade, mm -hmm. or human trafficking as it's called. And Sweden has done a very good job in, in dramatically reducing the amount of uh, prostitution there. Because what they do is they don't punish the female prostitutes. They do punish the brothel owners. They do punish the pimps. They do punish the male customers. Mm -hmm. And all you've got to do is arrest two or three prominent men in Boston, and I guarantee you there'd be a dramatic reduction in <laughs> prostitution. <laughs> So, so since, since the book came out, three countries now have communicated with me. In fact, I have written letters to all, to all the members of their parliaments in, in Canada and in France and in Ireland, and they are moving toward the Swedish model. Mm -hmm. In the United States, though, for every one man that's punished for brothel ownership or operation, 25 girls are taken into captivity and, and sent to jail. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. And we need to change it. You know, it's obvious that if we need to, we'd be a better society if we didn't have prevalent, yeah. a prominent prostitution going on. Yeah. So it's clear from your book that you, you want to try and mobilize the world's religious traditions yes. in this cause as well. Yeah. And you've taught Bible for a long time. I have. And I was just wondering, what do you think makes a difference in terms of how sacred texts get um, interpreted by people, either um, in favor of women's rights or in the case of even the tradition you want to belong to, that, uh, interpreted in a different way? What, what, what do you think makes a, uh, makes a difference and how could that be changed? When I was a child, the number one hero in my life was a woman a Baptist woman who was a missionary to China. Her name was Lottie Moon. And Lottie Moon died as a missionary because she gave her food to poor Chinese and starved to death. And, and all of our international uh, foreign mission programs in the Baptist church now are named for Lottie Moon. And so I, I, I kind of admired her above anybody else when I was a, a little child. And then later I saw, when I saw the Southern Baptist Convention closing down on the opportunity of women to be treated equally is when I and my wife just started to withdraw from the, mm -hmm. from Bat, Bat, from the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not, I'm not condemning the Southern Baptist Convention, but, but I, I think they made a, a wrong move. Mm -hmm. and, and in other denominations, and including the Baptist Church early on, yeah. uh, then they treated women as equal. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our Methodist churches and in, as you know, Episcopalians and, and others, they have women as pastors and, and deacons and even bishops. Mm -hmm. Well, that is, I think, the proper way to do it. But when, they, when there's a misinterpretation of the Holy Scriptures mm -hmm. and, you, and women are branded as the original origin of sin, since Eve took the apple from, from the serpent and gave it to Adam, mm -hmm. and, and in the second chapter of Genesis, not the first chapter, 
uh, a woman is assumed to be made out of the rib of man. Therefore, man was created first. Mm -hmm. That's some, what some of the Baptist men leaders choose to say, prove that women are inferior. Right. They, were, they, they were created later and they caused original sin. Mm -hmm. Well, it, to me, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I, I have tried to promulgate that to other people as well. And, and I think that in general, there is a move in the world to eliminate that discrimination. But, but that's the, one of the major origins right. of the prosecution and, and, and treatment of secondary women. As a matter of fact, uh, if, if an employer is hiring a man and a woman and he is deeply religious and he considers women to be inferior, why shouldn't he pay women 23% mm -hmm. uh, less than he pays men, mm -hmm. you know, for a year's work? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so there's an excuse that you can use. Yeah. I think that's the first step. And also to eliminate the United States as a leader in being most inclined toward violence to resolve yeah. differences. Yeah. Does everybody in your Bible class see it your way? <laughs> everybody who attends regularly does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> as, a, as a matter of fact, we have a very tiny church. Uh, we only have about 30 members who come every Sunday. And, but we have uh, two or 300 visitors who come to see the curiosity of a politician teaching Holy Scripture. And so, uh, so they're about 15% about Baptist and about uh, the rest of them are other Protestants and Catholics and, and quite often Muslims and, and, uh, and other denominations come to hear me right. teach. A lot of Jews come mm -hmm. and we have just an open discussion, sometimes an argument back and forth. Mm -hmm. But I think very few of them have ever spoken out in contradiction to my premises, mm -hmm. which I mentioned quite often, as you can imagine, <laughs> concerning women. Yeah. Yes. One of the undercurrents in your book, more than an undercurrent, and I think it came out pretty strongly in your um, address today, is, a, is both a great sense of patriotism and a great sense of disappointment in the yeah. United States yes. in these areas, um, um, and especially around the culture of violence, um, which you, um, I think, very powerfully argue um, it easily moves into a culture of violence against women as well, women and girls. As a former president who's, who's been really at the center of things, I mean, are, are there ways in which this culture of violence can be shifted, changed? And what, what, what would it take to really get at that and make a difference? Um, you know, I, I think that uh, obviously the first step is, is for the facts to be known. And I don't know how many people in the audience knew what I just mm -hmm said in my, in my talk. But I think that's the first thing is to let it be known how bad it is. And uh, for instance, rape, one, another subject I didn't even mention, didn't have time to mention, is, is rape during war zones, in war zones. Yeah. And uh, that's been the case down through history. Uh, in the eastern part of uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, there's a horrible case of rape going on right this moment. And uh, Angelina Jolie, uh, took upon that, took that upon herself as one of the major issues that he, she addressed after she made a movie on the subject. And she and the foreign minister of Great Britain uh, worked on this together. So a, a powerful politician and a movie actress have, have emphasized that. And that has resulted in some very tangible uh, 
opportunities for improvement because not just the United Nations General Assembly, but the United Nations Security Council has now ordained officially that rape in a war zone is a permanent, unforgivable crime. Mm -hmm. and, and 15 years later, the perpetrators of those rapes, if proven, will not be impervious to punishment. Mm -hmm. So that's going to have a deterrent effect. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that can be done uh, one step at a time. But I think that uh, lately, uh, the United States Department of Education, which I created when I was president, by the way, under Title IX, has begun to intercede at Harvard and at, and at Emory, where I teach, and other places, to uh, point out that, that universities have a responsibility to, to uh, address this issue of sexual abuse and rape on the college campuses. Mm -hmm. And a lot of universities are fighting back. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, among the top universities in America, 41% uh, of them have not reported a single case of sexual assault of any kind in the last five years yeah. because they don't want to report it. Yeah. And as you know, the, the Heisman Trophy winner last year, mm -hmm. who happens to be from Florida State University, he's accused by women, uncontradicted, of rape, raping two women mm -hmm. with complete impunity mm -hmm. because the local police in Tallahassee, Florida, don't want to punish a star right. football player. Right. And, and a great number of the... Uh, sexual assaults on college campuses are perpetrated by male mm -hmm. athletes who are admired and who are very powerful and influential and, 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 who, uh, wanted, and who, uh, the rest of the student body wants to please. Yeah. So the message is we've got to clean our own house. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Big time. Another, um, I think, theme of your book that uh, on the sadness side, I think, is that you, in one of your early chapters, you have this... Um, um, uh, you know, you repeat some of the articles of the Universal um, Declaration of Human Rights, yes. um, which was what 1948 right. uh, adopted, and so we're um, almost 70 years out from that. And um, has it surprised you, shocked <laughs> you, how l l little um, gain there has been in some of those really quite radical um, uh, uh, articles? You know, there's only been one time in human history about which I'm familiar, where the world stopped for a short while and said, let's correct the basic causes of violence and despair and discrimination and punishment of, of others. That was right after the Second World War. Yeah. The United Nations were created to prevent new wars, and the Universal Declaration of, Independ of, uh, of Human Rights was, um, was approved mm -hmm. by 45 nations at the time. And uh, the, it's a very brief document. I hope all of you will call it up on Google and just read them over. There are only 30 paragraphs. Mm -hmm. I wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times last year and pointed out that the United States of America, particularly since 9-11, is violating 10 of the yeah. 30 paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of those paragraphs specifically went out of their way to say women and men should be treated exactly equal in all aspects of life, in employment opportunities, in education opportunities, uh, in every aspect okay. of life. Yeah. And uh, that is not being done yeah. in our country or in other countries. Yeah. So I think the deliberate violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is one of the things that all countries mm -hmm. now uh, accepted by each other have pledged to uh, uh, conform to, but which they are violating. Yeah. Is there any way of turning the screw on that a bit? Or? I 
I tried to write a book. I'm making speeches, you know, around the country. I understand. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I might say without a fee, but uh, which is fine. But I think it's I think it's the most important <laughs> issue that I have to address during the remainder of my life. Right. And I hope that I can convince enough people, like the I've met with, with the. Foreign Minister of uh, Great Britain and mm -hmm. so forth. He's working with Angelina Jolie. Right. So I think I think that more and more powerful people are getting now aware of it and, and are trying to move within the United Nations, within the U.S. Congress, and within countries like Sweden and mm -hmm. and others. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that's part of it. But the main thing has to come from people who think and who have now present uh, voices that are free of intimidation, like college students. Mm. And the ones here at Harvard, the ones that I teach at Emory every month. And uh, I think that's where the, the corrective action has to be taken. One of the, I think, really positive stories of your book and the Carter Center um, has been the role of women, you know, you know, despite lower literacy and education rates, in the great public health initiatives of the Carter Center yes. and, and elimination of disease. Can you speak to that a little bit? And, I mean, I think you say somewhere in the book that, um, that women have been key to almost all the successful public health projects of the Carter Center. Well, well, they have. You know, when we go into a country that is afflicted with onchocerciasis, which is rubber blindness, or dracunculiasis, which is worms coming out of your body, or with lymphatic filariasis, where your sexual organs and your arms and legs swell up to grotesque sizes and so forth, uh, we go to the women because they're the ones who are familiar with, with the, what, what their children eat and drink. They've, they've also fixed the food, uh, prepared the kind of water that their husbands mm -hmm. and themselves drink. They're the ones that can take corrective action. So we work very closely with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, also we found that when we had a major agriculture program in 15 countries in Africa, we taught 8 million families how to double or triple their production of basic food grains, like corn and wheat and, and rice, sorghum and millet and so forth. And almost invariably, the ones who did the work were the women. Mm -hmm. They work in the field. Mm -hmm. uh, the husband take care of the livestock and, and the cows and, and, uh, and sheep and, and goats and so forth. So this is, we just saw that, this, that the women were the ones that we have to take care of. We went into Ethiopia to train public health workers. Uh, we've trained 32,000 health workers in mm -hmm. Ethiopia, working very closely with the Ethiopian Minister of, of Health and Education. Uh, and 7,000 of those are equivalent to a registered nurse or a physician's assistant. And uh, the other 28,000 or so are women that have the education of a licensed practical nurse. Those, those uh, 27,000 are all women. Mm -hmm. And two of them came from each village in Ethiopia, which called, they call a Woreda. And now each Woreda has two trained public health workers mm -hmm. to take care of, of the people. So you see that the women are the ones that really do that yeah. work. Yeah. We're now uh, doing away with guinea worm, which is dracunculiasis, and uh, in South Sudan, which is where it, most of the cases still remain, about 60 cases. Mm -hmm. We started out with three and a half million cases. Mm -hmm. In 20 countries, we now have less than 100 cases in the world, and we're doing away with those. But the women are the ones that are doing the work now. Mm -hmm. We have about 135 uh, people on our payroll, mostly uh, native Su Southern Sudanese, and about 12,000 volunteers in villages that are women. Mm -hmm. So the women are the ones that really can take the corrective action mm -hmm. concerning uh, health care mm -hmm. and, and food 
quality. Yeah. yeah. So as you come towards the end of your book, you, um, uh, you list these 23 articles, uh, mm. two of which have got particular relevance to a university camp. Well, they all have, <laughs> two in particular. The ninth is Title IX. That's uh, right. Did you choose the ninth for Title IX, or was that just an accident? <laughs> there's, there's some accident. No, it's a very, very, very <laughs> creative accident. And then I think it's the 15th where you talk about um, um, you know, generating the kind of knowledge um, across religious traditions that yes. could start to make a difference. And as you look out in this audience of, um, you have a captive audience um, <laughs> uh, um, of students and teachers and deans and faculty, um, what would you most want to say today? I mean, apart from read your book and think about it, but what, what, what charge would you leave this audience with as the, um, as the most passionate thing that you want to say that we need to be uh, doing? Well, you know, I, th I think it's important. I'm, I'm not just trying to sell a book, but, you yeah. know, I think it's important. If you're interested in the subject I described, uh, get a copy of the book. It's available on Amazon and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And, uh, and read it over and, and see where your own personal interest is uh, precipitated or aroused. And figure out as a human being with God-given talent and ability and, and, and high influence for this particular group, what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. And there are 23 choices here uh, about what you might want to do. Uh, and there's a, there's a plethora of women's organizations that I, that I in some cases, kind of brought to new life because of the work of the Carter Center. Mm -hmm. And say, what can I do personally to alleviate the horrendous persecution and prosecution and, and uh, discrimination and punishment and even murder mm -hmm. of my fellow human beings? who happen to be female. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a more important single human rights mm -hmm. cause that anyone could undertake mm -hmm. more important than this. Mm -hmm. So that would be my most fervent appeal to this audience. Mm -hmm. President Carter, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, too. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all very much. So, uh, President Carter? <laughs> 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 Should I say? All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we come bearing gifts, ah, really, yeah, that um, we chose things that we knew were light and you could carry easily. <laughs> <laughs> Good, thank you. Um, the first one is this wonderful um, uh, print from our library. Um, it's a, a, a print that dates to uh, 1734. And it really tells the story of the um, uh, Salzburger uh, Protestants, Lutherans, yeah. um, no, sure. um, who um, were, um, as a result of the edict, um, were forced out of their homes, out of their homelands. It was one of the great examples of confessional cleansing in early modern Europe. And they wandered their way through um, a, a number of places, and they eventually fetched up um, in Georgia, All right. as you know, I remember. and established, I think, the oldest um, still um, um, used 
worship church in the state of Georgia. That's correct. So I thought it was a, a, an appropriate gift of um, you know, bringing together human rights, uh, the, the, um, the state of Georgia, then the colony of Georgia, uh, the state of Georgia now, obviously. Yes. Um, so it's a beautiful uh, Thank you very um, much. That's wonderful. The other thing about it is that it, was, it, it really uh, meandered around the news media in the 1730s and was really one of the big contributory causes of the first great evangelical awakening from the um, um, Urals in the east to the Appalachians in the west. So it was really a kind of, I think, a, a generative event in the kind of religious tradition which I know has been important to your life. It so, has been. Thank you yeah, for this. So. That's wonderful. Thanks. And I'm really grateful to you. I'm going to take it from you. And, uh, I'll take it. Uh, um, we will give it back to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm not leaving without it. And the other thing is, um, um, I, I think one of the things that we thought would be a really nice um, um, uh, memory of this visit is to um, present the um, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter Scholarship. Um, um, so I'll just read you this beautiful calligraphy, uh, <laughs> which states the President um, Jimmy Carter Scholarship for 2014-15 will be awarded to a Harvard Divinity School student working on and advancing studies of human rights issues. It, com it commemorates President Jimmy Carter's visit to Harvard Divinity School on the 19th of November, 2014. Throughout his long career, Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States, has demonstrated exemplary and true dedication to extraordinary values. President Carter's caring convictions and courageous actions have advanced and deepened awareness of human rights and improved the lives of countless people throughout the United States and around the world. As an institution with historical roots in Christian studies, now combined with deep expertise in global religious studies, Harvard Divinity School educates scholars, teachers, ministers, and other professionals for leadership and service, both nationally and internationally. The President Jimmy Carter Scholarship carries forward this mission, honoring President Carter's lifelong commitment to building a world in which people can live and work together across religious and cultural divides. That's wonderful. That's better than a fee. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. So, um, yes. um, so we also have um, wow. uh, with us the first um, uh, recipient of the scholarship. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce to you the, S uh, the HDS student who will be the first recipient. And that's uh, Carlene Griffiths-Siku. Um, <clears throat> she's a first-year Master of Divinity student. Where are you from? I'm from Jamaica, but I live in Boston. All right, I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want you to stay in touch with me. I will. I look forward to working with the party. All right. I hope so. Well, thank, thank you very much. That's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. So Carlene uh, focuses on international human rights and security, public health, and the politics of community development, especially pertaining to gender-based violations of human rights in many different parts of the world. So it's, she's just a wonderful recipient for this uh, first award. She's from Jamaica originally, but now lives in Boston. Yeah. 
Uh, and she's going to work for the Carter Center. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she just told me. I, uh, <laughs> it's all been sorted out, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again. That's yeah. wonderful. So um, this brings to then just to the, um, uh, uh, um, the first part of our program. So um, uh, President Carter will be just taking a short break. And then we'll be signing books um, at about 5.30, I think, uh, down here. Um, uh, those of you who can stay for that, please do um, uh, stay around and um, uh, just converse, talk about the issues that came up today. Um, and President Carter will um, uh, re-emerge. Uh, for those of you who uh, need to go home, um, uh, thanks so much for coming for what I think has been really a powerful, really powerful okay. and important uh, uh, gathering here at uh, Memorial Church. And I'm really deeply grateful to you for okay. all that you do and for the person you are. Okay. And all of you come back to church here Sunday, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> best for you. Um. Thank you. 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 Thank you.